Hi, my name is Cecilia Puna, and welcome to this episode of Brave New Women. All around the world, there are amazing, ordinary women doing extraordinary things. Brave New Women is about giving those women a platform and a voice, and it's about changing the way that women are perceived. And it's a way of inspiring all of us to do the things that we've always wanted to do. It's a great pleasure for me to welcome Jan Roberts to the to the show. And Jan is an Australian historian, and I'm particularly pleased to have her because and to be speaking to her because um, she has got a particular interest in women's history. So, Jan, welcome. Thank you very much, Cecilia. It's a great pleasure to be here and chat about my favourite topic. <laughs> so, Jan, my, my first question for you is um, you started your career as a teacher and then um, in, in midlife you, decided, you, you changed and you, you started to have a particular interest in history. And how did that, just tell me about how that happened. I've always had a passionate interest in history, Cecilia, from the time I was very tiny. And um, at school, uh, that was reinforced by the teacher in history. I think it was year eight, which is a terrible year normally. Most students are very riotous. But the history teacher asked us to put ourselves in the shoes of somebody of another era. And it was the Renaissance era, which is my particular favourite. and. Ever since then, I thought this is the way that really history should be taught by trying to be in the shoes of another era and somebody else. And it just went on from that. I I went to university studying history, but it was so boring because it was really all about um, dates and men, and I felt so irrelevant to the lives that I was interested in. and and social history wasn't mentioned. It was all political and very, very dull. But I, I managed to scrape through. But then when I was um, a young mother and starting to resume my history career, a friend put me onto a new women's history course that was just starting in New South Wales for uh, the HSC, the High School Certificate in the uh, syllabus. And it was purely women's history, all very new. This was in the, uh, came into the curriculum in the 1970s. So we're talking now, was early 80s that this job was more or less given to me. I knew nothing about it. I was always one, had to be one step ahead of the students. So we were all learning together. And and that was really what changed my life because then I realised this is how history should be. There are two genders in the world and we shouldn't be excluded from history. So that was my big turning point. And after teaching that syllabus, I taught it for six years. And then they suddenly decided uh, in wisdom that yeah, that history subject would go and it would be replaced by World War I. Mm. And I had no desire to go back into the trenches. I did not like uh, the study of war and the intensive study of war for 17-year-olds. So I decided I would pursue women's history. And I'd already found Maybank Anderson mm-hmm. by my my coursework and research, mm-hmm. and I decided to leave. And that's when I took my plunge mm-hmm. to change direction and and write full time and research as a historian. I think I was my late forties, mm-hmm. 
mm-hmm. which was a good time to change. Mm. Can I just go back right back to the beginning? You said that you, um, even as a tiny child, you were interested in history. Um, tell me a bit more about that. Where did that come from? I, well, we had a lot of books. Of course, there was no television then, and my parents were very literate, and there were always lots of books. Um, H.G. Wells' Outline of History and lots of uh, Shakespeare's heroines, childhood, all sorts of, of aspects of history were available to me as a child to read amongst all the Dickens and the other things that, you know, children today would never think of reading. Mm-hmm. But from the age of about eight, um, I, I devoured books like that and history and English, but particularly history I loved. Mm. What did, your, what did your parents do? My mother was an early university graduate in science from Sydney University. She'd wanted to do arts but unfortunately dropped Latin. And in the 1920s, when she was um, ducks of her school at PLC Pimble, uh, wanting to go to university, if you didn't have Latin, you couldn't study English and the arts. You couldn't do a BA. So mm-hmm. she had to do science. She had to study chemistry in the school holidays to get into science, and she did that. But really her love was English and history, ancient history particularly. So she was a huge interest, uh, influence. But my father, who'd left school early and done the usual sort of men's jobs, fencing in Queensland, and then ending up in, in New Guinea during the Depression, he also was very literate. His father was a clergyman. And so he, he was a, a strong and profound reader as well as my mother. Mm-hmm. So, yeah, the power of books and the love of books was right through my childhood. Mm-hmm. And if, if you could see me where I am, I'm surrounded by my library because at the age of my late 60s, I managed to get my perfect house, which has all my books in one room mm. in a, my own library. <laughs> <laughs> oh, that's it. <Yeah>. A- <laughs> A dream, a dream room. A dream room. I'm so lucky. Mm. And so, when you said you, um, so you, you taught the course on on women's history. Where where was that course? I taught that at Roseville College, mm-hmm. uh, and I my main teaching was always the senior students. But I I would teach year sevens as well. Mm-hmm. Usually ancient history. I love that. So I would. I would see the students into the school and then out the other end into their chosen careers at the end of the HSC. Mm-hmm. Hmm. And then you said that you took the took the plunge. What was the plunge? The plunge was leaving a paid job and the security that went with that and taking um, a job that didn't have much financial security, but um, I was prepared to take the risk. And then later on, once I'd had two books published, um, two history books published, I then started my own small press because I realised that because I was a fairly late starter and women's history is not really a huge seller, um, if you sell a 1,000 copies, that's, you're doing quite well. Mm-hmm. And if you, break, if you break even, you're doing quite well. So publishers are not going to really like women's history. It was, was hard getting published. And pretty painful with all the rejections and lots and lots of edits. And I loved it and I, I was confident I would find both a publisher and a small niche market. Uh, but it just took a lot of 
you know, a lot of effort and a lot of banging doors and that's when I became brave to see it here. Mm. That's when you became a brave new woman. Yeah, because every other job I'd just walk into. You want a teaching job? Easy. Mm. Ah, you want to be a writer? You want to write history? You want to write women's history? That was a different story. Wow. So wow. I had to be very committed and very certain that there would be a market, that other people would like what you were working on. So, of course, you know, to become a writer before you have your first major book published, you do all sorts of other things, you know, little articles, giving talks, da-da-da, everything, little um, just to test the air and test that there was an interest in your chosen subjects. And and I did find that was exciting and good training mm. for for the, the challenge of writing 100,000 words, you know, articles in in women's journals, there were women's journals then in the 70s and 80s that were happy to publish women's feminist work, not just um, romantic short stories. They were interested. There was with the second wave of the women's movement that came through the late 60s and 70s, that was the push that, that stimulated me and countless other women around the world. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. So I was just part of that. Mm great impetus to to bring women's lives to the fore mm. and and when where did the interest in particularly in women's history come from well it was that course it was that course. I, just, I felt an immediate rapport we i'll give one example john MacArthur in australian history john MacArthur was well taught and well known as the so-called pioneer of the sheep industry and the wool industry in Australia, we rode upon the sheep's back for many generations. But in fact, his wife Elizabeth did a huge amount of the scientific work of breeding the sheep and um, running the plant, running the farm when he was uh, in trouble with the law overseas and court cases, etc. She was the real pioneer, and that mm. came through in that women's history course that we were teaching. Mm. So we learned about women like Carolyn Chisholm and the role she had played. So we were profiling women and searching, and we're all doing our own research too because there wasn't much published about it. Mm -hmm. But it was a, a wonderfully exciting time. So tell me, what, what, what um, histories have you written? Can you tell me? Uh, the, <laughs> the first and major one that gave me the, um, the courage was Maybank Anderson. Mm -hmm. who who I, I discovered because of teaching the history course at Roseville College. And nothing much had been written about her. She was just on all these lists that I was researching and trying to help my students with. Um, and so when I decided that it was time that I did something for myself instead of something for my students and their course had finished, I decided to do a biography of her. And um, that was a hugely lucky break. My first two attempts to find a topic had been failures. Mm -hmm. One was I would have had to go and live in Wales for two years, <laughs> and I didn't want to do that. I wanted to find an Australian history topic and especially a women's history, and I decided that I would like to concentrate on biography, mm -hmm. tell, tell people's lives and stories. I realised I couldn't do dialogue. I couldn't write fiction because you have to be able to do dialogue. And I just couldn't do that. I knew that I was okay. But 
the research involved, that's the part that I absolutely loved. Mm-hmm. So at first I just called myself a research historian and all the other things, including, you know, the doctorate, which I achieved for my second book, that came um, fairly quickly, really, I suppose. So my first one was Maybach Anderson's Sex Suffrage and Social Reform, mm-hmm. which, which told the story of how she helped win the vote for women and all the other things that she did to um, improve the lives of women and children in the colony of New South Wales and to help federation so that Australia federated. Mm-hmm. So that was, that was all original historical uh, research and publication. And that was my la- launching pad to do a doctorate because I had a master's in English, but to make the transition to history, I had to learn those new skills to become a professional historian. Mm-hmm. So tell me, tell me a bit about what does every day, um, how does historical research work? What, what do you actually do as a historical researcher? Every day I tried to do something new and different, um, even if it was just a phone call in between other chores that, that we women do, even if it was just one meeting um, to try and find out one new piece of historical research material. But basically it was a slog in libraries. And nowadays nearly everything, of course, is uh, digitised. So I was probably the last, one of the last generation of historians who would sit in the Mitchell Library in the State Library of New South Wales and send for um, files, letters, newspapers, all all the hard copy of history mm-hmm. and go through dusty, um, really un- nothing was scanned, there was no digitisation and it was, it was so exciting. Love letters from the past and uh, you never knew what you were going to find. It was just such a magical time mm-hmm. and not, not sitting at the desk all the time. I'd be going off to interview people someone who knew someone and, you know, just such a, an exciting time. I wish that I'd been able to write a book about how I did the research. Mm. <laughs> and that's, of course, the wonderful thing that Richard Holmes did in, in his beautiful book that influenced so many of us called Footsteps, and he was the pioneer of that type of history writing. Mm-hmm. I'd, I'd love to do it, but... Um, he did it. He did it first in the 1980s. Mm-hmm. Mm. So I, I, I'd like to come back to Maybach Anderson, but um, so that was your first, your first um, big, big success publication. Yes. publication. And then after that, what, what were the other books that, that you've written? Uh, the second history book was my doctorate, mm-hmm. and I had, I had the confidence once Maybank had had been published and did well and and was on its own life and trajectory. I just sat down one Christmas holiday to talk to my mother about her life as a woman with children in New Guinea mm-hmm. in the in the era between World War One and World War Two, before they had to all uh, hurriedly leave New Guinea because the Japanese were coming, and we just chatted at this Christmas holiday because my father was such a dominant man and such a great storyteller that we only ever heard his stories about. New Guinea mm-hmm. and what what exciting times they were. My mother. What, what, were they, what were they doing in New Guinea? My parents were then on a plantation, 
uh, run by Burns Philp. They were man- Dad was the manager of a Burns Philp plantation. Mm-hmm. That was a job he got during the Depression when there were so few jobs in Australia that a lot of young men joined up to go and work in the in the islands. In, and New Guinea was uh, a so-called colony of Australia and there were jobs there for men that didn't have jobs in Australia. So he went off and after a while was a, appointed a manager of a, a copra plantation. Mm-hmm. And so he, he had a house there, beautiful German-built plantation house and a copra plantation. And so he wrote to my mother and asked her if she would join him. And like so many of those women, she said yes. She she knew Dad well, of course, but she didn't have any idea what New Guinea was going to bring. Mm. And so she put her trousseau together and embarked on a new adventure and she was very excited, but her family was appalled that they would that she would leave them and go to this tropical, unknown place with savages who were cannibals. And, oh, they were very anxious. <laughs> <laughs> and, and they had no idea, and she really had no idea, and, and Dad had glamorised it, of course, in order to woo her there mm. and told her how wonderful it would be. But there she was, this this glamorous graduate from Sydney University with a beautiful trousseau and wardrobe and she went to live in a copra plantation on New Island miles from anyone else, mm. miles from any white people or anyone who who really would be compatible friend for her in this, you know, lonely place. So, And were they married at that stage? They married as soon as she arrived in Rabal. They were married and then the next day they left from Rabal to go to this place called New Island in a copra boat and she was violently seasick all the way. I think it was never had a honeymoon, never. And then they landed on this little plantation miles from anywhere. So that was my first oral introduction to what could what became my passion, my next passion, which was this oral history project mm-hmm. to turn to a doctorate. So I interviewed my mother, then Ken's mother, because my husband was born in New Guinea at a place called Salamoa, when his father did a similar thing, got a job in New Guinea and then proposed by post to <laughs> someone <laughs> to someone he knew vaguely. <laughs> and she also decided that she'd like to go to live in New Guinea. They must have been such good salesmen. <laughs> Because it was nothing like what they imagined, I'm sure. Anyway, they were trapped. They were married as soon as they arrived. And there they were in this this fairly hostile and extraordinary. But those women were very strong. You know, they'd mostly been brought up in the country, in in Australia. They they were adventurous and they wanted an interesting life and they were prepared to take the risk. Mm -hmm. And they... They must have known. They must have read, you know, Life with Cannibals and things like that. They were racy adventure stories, so they would have known a bit of what was, what it was like. But, and what, what was it like for them? It was, it was hard. It was adventurous, but it was also exciting, Cecilia. They, they had an experiences that you would never have uh, in suburban Sydney, and many of them went back after the war 
A lot of them didn't, of course, like my mother and my husband's mother. They didn't go back. But many of the women I interviewed who did a huge range of jobs, I interviewed one side experimented with my mother and my mother-in-law, and then I, I connected with others through them. It was a wonderful sort of network that was setting up very quickly. Oh, you're doing a book on the women in New Guinea. Fantastic. Because they were all old and they knew they were going to die. And if I didn't get their stories, nobody would. Mm. Because nearly all the book, well, all the books that were written about New Guinea at that time told of men's stories. Mm -hmm. um, the uh, Encyclopedia of Papua New Guinea had just been published when I was starting to um, think about it, full of feminist zeal. There wasn't, uh, I think there were a couple of entries on women anthropologists, but really uh, the contribution that women made to the colonial life in New Guinea was absolutely uh, not mentioned. Hmm. So I interviewed women who went as missionaries, nurses, they ran hotels, uh, teachers, uh, plantation people uh, in administration. I did so much. I, I was able to find out so many different stories of all, and they lived all over from the highlands to city centres like Rabaul and Port Moresby and did so many incredible things and had wonderful stories to tell as well as painful things mm -hmm. like marriages that went wrong and they uh, all had malaria and uh, childbirth was difficult. So all of the, and then um, a lot of them lost loved ones uh, for various reasons, especially when the war broke out and the Australian men were told to stay in New Guinea at their posts, although they had no means of defence, mm. none whatever. Women and children were evacuated, like my husband. Luckily, my parents left early um, because Dad had decided that he would enlist in the what was then called the European War, although they all knew the Japanese were coming. So he left quickly. He was able to enlist and then they left quickly. Mum was pregnant with me. So they were lucky they got out. The men, for instance, in New Ireland who, didn't, who weren't allowed to leave because they were too late at enlisting, they had to stay there and nearly all of them were, were killed. Oh, gosh. Um, yes, either, either on wharves, pushed over, killed, or they died in, in the Montevideo Maru, which was the, the biggest maritime disaster in Australian history. And, hard, and the it's still quite mysterious um, whether the men were actually on the ship. It was torpedoed. Mm -hmm. it's a, so there's so much. The last chapter of my book, which is called Voices from a Lost World, um, covers the, that wartime period. It took me six months to do the research on the last chapter and six months to write it. So that's a whole year. Uh, because I knew that I had to get everything right because the women who confided their stories in me and often crying and they'd never told anybody some of the things before, um, I had to get it right for them. Mm. I had to make sure that everything, I cross-checked everything with newspapers of the time and newsreels, everything I could find to make sure their stories were were accurate mm. and that I was accurate. Anyway, that. So that took me took me seven years research to do the full biography of Maybank, mm. and then 
took me, luckily I got a grant to do it because I had to spend money on that project, had to do field trips to New Guinea, which were wonderful. I did two of those. I got an Australian Research Fellowship to do that, thank goodness. And, of course, I had to buy uh, various things for my own library so that I could use the books if I felt like writing at four in the morning, which I often do. Mm-hmm. Um, I had my own small, very specialist New Guinea books I could use. Um, so I was very lucky that I that I was given that grant on the strength of that the, the um, academic uh, circles that I was then mixing with knew that it that once these women had died, the stories would be gone. Mm-hmm. Uh, so they were as keen as I was. Other a couple of other women had attempted to to do this topic, but had given up because it was really very intensive. Mm-hmm. Are there any particular stories that your mother told about being a wife in in, in Papua New Guinea? Uh, she she was very preoccupied. She's always been a fabulous cook, and it started very young. So when she went to New Guinea, she had uh, cut out all these newspaper clippings from the Women's Weekly. They always every week they had little articles on how to cook so and so. So she clipped them all out and took them and the ones that she thought she could adapt to New Guinea. When she got to New Guinea, she realised that to make anything of those recipes, she uh, had to grow her own vegetables and fruit and she had to uh, use what was in the sea. Uh, So she'd have to, and she had some help from uh, a young, they called them houseboys. She had a young boy, a houseboy, uh, Tabo, I think his name was, and he would catch fish for her and she learned to marinate raw fish, mm-hmm. which was very avant-garde. She had a goat, herd of goats, so she learned, had to milk the goats, <laughs> make, and, you know, this, but because she'd been a, a boarder and a country girl, it, it was easier for her than it would have been for a suburban girl. And, but, um, and then she learned uh, how to be self-sufficient and that was she had a lot of books uh, that were with with they both brought books with them and I guess they they played cards but her stories were mostly of of coping and how she had very little social life um, unlike very lonely no she was never lonely mm. no no and they had very good horses because they they only had one truck I think. So that she and Dad used to ride in the moonlight on horseback on the beach, on these lovely long beaches. Mm. So I think that was a terrific thrill. Mm. And they befriended the natives from the nearby village called Nalas Village, and they used to put on sing-sings and, um, and also sing to them. They, were, they weren't frightened, but she said Dad always slept with a gun under his pillow um just in case mm. so, yeah but it it was a, a very exciting time mm. wow and she was pregnant with me when they left and so you to, you were her first child second my brother was born while they were living there mm-hmm. and i was um conceived in new guinea mm-hmm. yeah mm-hmm. so it's a bit of new guinea in me <laughs> <laughs> I mean, what an amazing life for somebody who grew up in in 
in Sydney and then and then went off to live in the back end of Papua New Guinea. That's extraordinary. So all the women that I interviewed, and there were 31, I interviewed children as well. So I had two boys in my group. Uh, the boys were about my age, and uh, but mostly the women were my parent, my mother's age group. So, But it was wonderful how they trusted me, Cecilia, because I really didn't, I was, I was pretty much a novice. And uh, they were teaching me and helping me all, all the way through because mm-hmm. they wanted their stories recorded as well. I learned how to use a tape recorder. I did a short course in oral history at University of New South Wales where I was enrolled to do my doctorate. So I learned how to use a tape recorder and uh, tape the stories. And then I used some of my grant money to get the tapes transcribed, mm-hmm. which was would have been a huge job. Mm. Yeah, it was very exciting. It was a great adventure for me too. Mm. And I so much from those women. Yeah, I mean, I would imagine also that um, interviewing such women who have been so strong and in such um, difficult situations and have learned to cope in difficult situations would be absolutely fascinating. Oh, it was. Mm. I think what might still be available, I will give myself a little plug. It's called Voices from a Lost World. Mm. Australian women and children in Papua New Guinea before the Japanese invasion. Mm. They were called the B4s or the B4s. Mm-hmm. <laughs> well, I, I'd, love, I'd love to read it, so I hope I can one day. I was lucky. It was published within a year of me finishing my doctorate. Mm-hmm. So I was very lucky. So after, the, after that book, what, was the, um, what, what did you write after your doctorate? Well, I, that's when I started Ruskin Rope Press because I decided it was so hard and I was getting up into my 50s, I thought that I would enjoy the process of um, working with my own small press mm-hmm. because uh, it was hard to find publishers and also they made mistakes and I thought I'd like to, I'd like to make, I, I knew I'd make mistakes but they'd be my mistakes instead of having some 20-year-old sub-editor deciding that she'd fiddle with my index or them deciding they'd only publish a thousand copies which is what happened with the Maybank book Mm. they published a thousand copies and it sold out so quickly and they wouldn't republish oh so I decided there was a market so that was one of the first things I did I republished the 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 biography Mm -hmm. of that book and that has just steadily sold to schools, for book clubs, all sorts. So there was a market there. And with, mm. and um, so that was the first thing I did with my new press was to republish the biography. What did it involve setting up the, setting up a, a printing press? How do you actually, so, or setting up a press? How do you, how do you do that? Well, I just, I decided on the perfect name. We were living at Ruskin Row at that time and I thought Ruskin Row Press sounded really good. Mm. A little, John Ruskin and you know just was a nice name and I developed a logo and decided I'd like to do the marketing side and the selling side as well as the as well as research right yeah it'd be it was fabulous I loved doing that I loved doing little brochures and selling it selling it at markets and talking about the books mm-hmm. it was very I I really enjoyed the commercial side of it and I aimed, it was a not-for-profit press, and I aimed to break even 
Mm-hmm. So uh, that's largely what I did. I got some grant money and and then I went on to to write more books and publish them and I had the last one was in 2018. And what, what was the, the last book that you've worked on? The last one was the family history one called um, The Family Chronicle in 75 Objects. Oh, and goodness. I, did, yeah, I copied, I copied the um, British Museum's uh, history of the British Museum in a hundred objects, mm-hmm. and I copied that format. And I chose beautiful objects from our family history, had them photographed, and then told the stories of them. Could you give me an example of a, a couple of the objects that you that you photographed? One example is my wedding ring, which mm-hmm. I'm holding now, mm-hmm. and it has four wedding women's wedding rings joined together. Mm-hmm. My great my grandmother, my mother and mine all joined together. So that was one of the objects. And the object before that was a photograph of the same four women, me as a baby, my great-grandmother, my grandmother, my mother and me all together, grouped together. Mm-hmm. So mixed photographs and object, lovely object from New Guinea. There's a lot of New Guinea in it. And my pet, my father bought um a wonderful obsidian uh, uh, trade stick in in Manus Island mm-hmm. from, because he loved Manus, very sad place now for Australian history, but in those days it was a wonderful place. And he bought that from the locals and I used it. We don't know how old it is, but it's just the most beautiful piece. Mm. So that's lots of things like that. Mm. Family objects which have wider meaning mm. because they're part of a wider history that we all have and share. Mm. Mm. Um, Jan, can we just go back um, and talk a little bit, a bit more about uh, Maybeck Anderson? Because it sounds like she is really the woman yeah. that inspired you the most and that you really got the most interested in it. And, and it's your first, first book. And uh, and, and a successful book. So can you just tell me a bit about her? Who was she? Uh, she was um, a middle-class woman from middle-class family. They immigrated from England, from Kingston-on-Thames, when she was nine. Mm-hmm. She was the youngest of three children. When did they immigrate? Uh, to Sydney from, from England in the 1850s. Mm-hmm. When a lot of people left England because the economy was very poor, I think you're related distantly to Maybank. Am I? You are. Ask your mother. So um, (laughs) a lot of people are related distantly to Maybank and her her very extended family through the longs. Anyway, we won't go into the – but you are connected to her. Okay. So she arrived in Sydney as a nine-year-old child, lived in the Rocks District where she saw – every um, social disaster um, possible. It was a vile place, apparently, in those days, very rough, very wild. And her her middle-class family lived quite discreetly there because her two brothers were apprenticed to be engineers, and that's the engineering headquarters then of of, um, the young colony of Sydney Mm -hmm. in the centre. So she was a little bit educated in a, in a dame school in England, so she was literate. And um, 
went to Fort Street, and then she became a, a young school teacher, had an unfortunate marriage, and her unfortunate marriage was the catalyst for her becoming a feminist reformer. So mm-hmm. she had she had seven children in 11 years. Four died very young, which was quite common then because dysentery and her family, I found out, uh, were TB carriers. So the four little dear little children died of TB-related illnesses. Mm-hmm. So she had, and three boys survived. And her husband became an alcoholic and she was the family breadwinner. And, of course, um, it was a hard time. She started a school and then she became very feminised by uh, the disastrous laws. She was uh, a big... She was, when you say she was the breadwinner, was that as um, from her school? From her school. She started, first was a, a teacher, then she became a small, started a small first of all, a boarding house, and then turned it into a girls' school, mm-hmm. which ran and ran it very successfully. She had terrific help from her mother. So she, her first public speech was on laws to which women take exception. She would have been a fabulous lawyer, Cecilia, mm. but um, that was not to be. So she, had a, she thought like um, a very, very strong social reforming lawyer so she needed to get a divorce. Uh, only grounds of divorce were desertion for many, many, many years, and you had to prove adultery as well. You couldn't get a, grant, a divorce on desertion. So with the help of um, William Charles Windia, and the Windias are family friends of your families, and he was uh, Chief Justice of New South Wales, he was able to influence the uh, he was such a he, he saw so many women who were in a similar situation to Maybank where they'd been deserted for years. They were supporting the family. They had no rights even to um, their own income that they'd earned. It was a dismal time for women and certainly time to to change lots of laws. So Maybank, when you say they had they had no rights to the income that they were that they were earning out, what what did that mean? Well, the man could. Uh, say in her situation, husband had disappeared to the bush. He could reappear and ask for her income that she had earned. Goodness. He, he would get child custody as well. So mm. the child, uh, the divorce laws had to be redone from the very baseline of child custody, um, change the desertion so that you didn't have to prove adultery because that was so hard to prove. Um, and um, make it a much fairer world for women like Maybank. So she didn't have a cloistered um, start in her in her life there, and that's what propelled her into law reform and social reform. So in that first speech that she made about um, laws that were, what was it, laws that were objectionable to women? Laws, yes. Uh, so what and was she speaking about then? What was What was she talking about in that speech? about the divorce and the property and the property laws mm-hmm. and the child custody, all of that, laws to which women take exception. And then that was the springboard onto them forming the Womanhood Suffrage League. And um, it, it's just the most fascinating story and her life story is also very intriguing. I, I really hope that they'd make a film or a miniseries because there's so much rubbish out there. But 
and she would make a fantastic subject for mm. that because her life is very dramatic and mm. full of change, drama and overcoming odds. So I was quite, although I'd been a teacher, I was quite timid about public speaking, for instance, but because I was so stirred up and incensed, if you like, by the injustice that women like her weren't known, she had been famous in her day. She was in every second newspaper article. She became so brave, but she wrote in one of her letters to Rose Scott that we are going to have to become brave mm. if we're going to achieve our goals. And all of them had to work hard at their public speaking, and they did that through starting groups like the Womanhood Suffrage League, and they started the equivalent of little book clubs. They started the Women's Literary Society so they would learn how to run meetings, they learn how to listen to each other and, and stand up and speak in front of a group. So those small embryonic groups gave the women in, in Australia, there were a lot of them, uh, the confidence to go onto the public stage. And um, Well, that's, I mean, that's, um, I find that fascinating because that's exactly what I am doing now. Um, yes. So... I, I'm, I'm seeking out women and helping women to see how much value they have now and to have the skills to then to then stand up and speak about things that are important to them. So um, yes, it's I'm interesting just, that have we, have we moved such a long way from the 18, <laughs> from the 19? When I, the, the book, May, the Maybank biography was launched on International Women's Day and in 1993, and I received a, a, a letter. Oh, I've received so many letters from people, but one came from Jennifer, and I'm going to read it to you. We women are tired of being told we have no place or little place in history except as the makers of men who make history. Thank you for rediscovering Maybank for us, giving us a past and a heroine and an inspiration for our times. So Jennifer, whom I didn't know, sent that to me after being at the book launch because there were lots and lots of people there I didn't know. And it was, she's a very inspiring person. Um, I've got a folder which I pulled out to get ready for tonight's speech on Maybank. It is bulging with uh, letters and newspaper clippings and articles that go back to the, the exciting times that, that I had and many, many other women had. But having said women, some of my best readers for the Maybank biography were men, often lawyers and legal men, and they were most generous. And Maybank always worked with men. Mm -hmm. She said, we've got to be like scissors. There's no point in, we, if we don't work to achieve our goals with men, we'll be like a useless pair of scissors, with, you know, in, quite separate. We've got to work together. To, uh, to build uh, a better society, a fairer, fairer mm. society. So how far did she get with, um, so she made, she, she made the speech on, on the laws and then she went what? through her own divorce. Um, yes, she got her divorce. She was the strategic um, thinker who put women's vote into the federal constitution. Mm -hmm. That's a huge thing. And... Um, the legalese that, that enable that to happen. It took years and years of dedicated work. She set up free kindergarten. Because Australian women didn't, didn't um, women in Australia have the vote 
way before many many women in in other in other oh, yes yes well australia was the first new zealand of course was the first to give women the vote but australia was the first to give women the vote and the right to stand for parliament mm-hmm. and that built on the work that the south australian women won in adelaide first and when, uh, when did that happen that happened in the 1896 i think it was and so they built on that victory and said if the women in South Australia had been given the right to vote, it had to be in the federal constitution because you couldn't take that right away. So all the other women are going to have to have the same right. So that was the, the bargaining tool and the strategic uh, weapon that they used to force it through when the federal constitution makers, who were all men, of course, mm. and most of Met in Adelaide in the in the eighteen nineties to write our constitution, and they pushed it through. It was a, a mammoth act, and it helped with federation, of course. So, she's so that was in nineteen oh nineteen oh two, was it? Yes, yeah. when that um, federation act was passed, we were so lucky. It was so hard fought, you know, Cecilia. It didn't happen easily, and people, and that's one of the reasons that her story is so important because. You can see how how hard they worked and how long it took. But Maybank herself was not a good promoter of how hard it was. She used to sort of brush it aside and say um, more or less that uh, the vote, we got the vote because it was put into that and it was, she brushed and didn't make it. She was so self-effacing herself mm. that it didn't do the cause any good really because she brushed it off when she was 80. She'd say things like, oh, of course, it was. It happened because it was in the Constitution because of... But it was... She dismissed it too too lightly, I think, mm. because she wanted to say we worked hard for, for 14 years. We had umpteen meetings. We lobbied every politician. Mm. Yes, I think a lot of us are like that. We're too diffident about saying how hard we worked to get what we got. Mm. And so it was a gift from men. Whereas it wasn't mm. anyway. Um, I, I I was speaking to a friend of mine recently who um, works in um, in IT, and he said that when he gets women's CVs, um, he always interviews them because they always put less on their CV than the men. And when when he interviews the men, he challenges them on everything that they say because a lot of it. <laughs> I don't know when that would change, Cecilia. We're all yeah. the same. And when I interviewed the New Guinea women and when you were making, uh, talking to women about doing these podcasts, the same thing. The New Guinea women say, oh, oh no, I didn't really do anything. I, mm. I'm just, mm. yes. But once we started talking and they told me about their daily lives and it all came through, what mm. wonderful, wonderful pioneers they were and how they, kept families together, for instance, and had babies and saved lives in impossible situations and mm. how brave they were. Mm. Yeah. yeah, every, every as you say, when it, almost every person I interview for, for the podcast says something like, oh, do you think it will be interesting? Or um, oh, I'm not very good at being interviewed or... Um, <laughs> Every single person, and then, um, and then, as you say, as we get into the podcast, and and this all this, this just the richness of of people's lives and interests come up, and you say, well, 
obvious it is so obvious that um that you've got so much to say and so much to contribute so it's well, just to finish on maybank and we can do something else if you want but i've done three books on her so first was the biography second i reprinted her story of pitwater which is a local history of where i live and she wrote that in 1920 mm-hmm. and that was a beautiful little publication. And then with an with my mentor, who was my PhD supervisor, who helped me with Maybank, I did her documents. I did all Maybank's documents so that it would be kept for posterity. All her letters, all her poems, because she won a poetry competition. She wrote a lot of poems. She wrote an amazing amount of women's history. The local histories of Hunters Hill and Pitwater plus all her political stuff. So we put them all together into this great big book for the for the centenary of Federation because mm-hmm. she, uh, she worked for Federation until I found those files in Canberra. We didn't know that any women had worked for Federation. Mm-hmm. So she was pioneer there. Just, and, uh, just in Federation, just for people who are listening from overseas, it's when we federated all the, the states in Australia colonies into into one nation Mm. yes thank you so we didn't know that and that's where historians rely on the skill of uh, people who librarians especially specialist librarians so people that you can go to and say do you have anything in your collection on uh, women in federation and so in the national library there was a fabulous librarian and he knew this minute little folder, a little folder that had never been looked at, that had all these letters and records of Maybank's work for Federation Mm. because she knew that if we federated, Australian women would get the vote. Mm. 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 It was such an incredible find. And if he hadn't known that, out of all the millions of things, all the objects that are in the National Library in Canberra, um, this uh, head of the library uh, library knew there was a file there, was the Darling file and where it was and told me to get it. And that's, yes. Yeah, so, but, uh, and then that book won, uh, here I'm going to have a small boast, it was selected to go into the Alexandria Library in Egypt when a 100 uh, of the best Australian books of all the last years or whatever were sent, were, the library asked for them to be sent over to Egypt to put to lodge in the Alexandria Library, which, you know, was the one that Alexander the Great, somehow it was burnt. He, there was a huge library there. It was destroyed and it's been rebuilt into this wonderful state-of-the-art library. I would I've seen that. that. I've seen that library. It's amazing, well, most beautiful building. Oh, the Maybank, huge, it's a very large book. Um, the book of documents, and it's in that library. So Gosh, I don't know true. if the other books out of it, but it's there. Mm. What what a great uh, recognition of the the work that you've done too. That's oh, it's such a Cecilia, and I think that's got to be the thing. And all the books I've done eight books, and they've all been following you know different directions of history, but following the the passion and the enthusiasm that you need to bring. To a project, if you're going to spend seven years or five years or even one full year 
on a project. And some of my collaborative, I work with other people sometimes, and sometimes I can speed them up to be shorter. But if it's original research and detail, that's pretty hard to get them uh, under a, um, around a year. They're mostly longer than that. Mm-hmm. And what are you working on now, Jen? I'm working on reading. Mm-hmm. <laughs> I did a COVID diary. I called it my corona diary. Um, I did the first two spikes of the corona crisis in, in Australia. I tried to make it a little global and I loved doing it. Mm-hmm. And then um, I decided that was enough. I didn't want to do it anymore, so I stopped. But uh, I enjoyed the research and writing of that. But now I'm just enjoying reading and um, surviving the crisis. Mm. We're all going. Mm. Mm. Um, I often finish these uh, interviews with two questions. Um, I'm not. I, I'm going to ask the first question, but I'm not sure that it's. I'll be interested in your in your response because I'm not sure that it's going to be relevant because um, you've got such an interest in promoting women's rights and in women's history um, that I'll ask the question anyway. So um, the question is, in your career, has the fact that you've been a woman made a difference, either positive or negative? Mm, I've always been very proud to be a woman. I think I was born a feminist. So I'd have to say I never wanted to be male. I never wanted to enter the male arena and and be in that having to earn and support a family. So I suppose I'd be happy to be an equal partner in a long, long marriage. But, no, I've never never resented the male role in society. I admire engineers more than practically anybody and I play bridge and I see that all the best bridge players are men. Mm. So I've always been very um, respectful of the male role as different from the female role and, no, I've never never regretted being female. I'm proud of being a female. Mm. I'm glad I am. No, that's a great response. And the last question that I, I like to ask is, um, if you had a message for the people who are listening, what would that message be? I'm just going to quote somebody. I've got it here. I didn't prepare it, but I've just got this little quote. I wish I'd thought of it. And it says, life can only be understood backwards, but it must be lived forwards. Hmm. Now, that's by Soren Kierkegaard. I can't pronounce his name, but he's a very famous Norwegian, is he? Philosopher and thinker mm-hmm. and writer. Mm-hmm. I think that's wonderful. So, um, and I also put in the beginning of, here, here's the my last book, mm-hmm. Family Chronicle in 75 Objects, and I've I opened it with a quote from Cicero, To be ignorant of what occurred before you were born is to remain always a child. For what is the worth of human life unless it is woven into the life of our ancestors by the study of history? Mm. (laughs) I'm very pleased that my my grandchildren love history at school. I don't know if any of them will take it further, but it is really, if you have a good history teacher, 
And you only need one good, as I had, I only had one good history teacher that turned me around. If you have a good history teacher, you're an extremely lucky person. Mm. And I think history is invaluable. And you don't have to study it at university. That's the wonderful thing about history. You can, and and biography too. I think everybody loves biographies. I'm just looking now at my whole column of biographies there in my in my library. I did an interview last week with somebody who is who is a biographer and who is writing um, biographies of people um, who come to her and say, you know, we, I would like to write a biography of my life for my family. Sometimes it's just for her family. Sometimes it's for their clients. Sometimes it's for wider publication. It's um, absolutely fascinating. Well, I call myself a biographer because all my works have been forms of biography, mm. uh, either a full life or, or episodic or memoir. It's such a rich field. There's so many areas of it. Mm. And even when I did the history of the Aster, which is a building, I called it the biography of a building. <laughs> <laughs> So, yes, good to be able to. Well, thank you so much, Jan. I mean, I, I come away from this interview really with the the importance of the work that you're doing and that you're, because so much of it is about women's history and what women are doing and how important women are. Um, and it's really a way of changing the way that we see the world um, and certainly supporting the sort of work that I'm, that I'm wanting to do. So. Um, so thank you. It's been such a pleasure spending time with you and, and learning about your work. Oh, thank you, Cecilia. It was a great pleasure. I hope you've enjoyed this episode of Brave New Women. On Friday, 22 January, I'll be holding a free webinar to talk about how women can stand up and speak up. There'll be two sessions, 8.30am in Paris, which is 6.30pm in Sydney, and then the second session at 2.30pm Paris, which is 8.30 a.m. on the U.S. East Coast. If you'd like to join us, please connect on LinkedIn or on the Brave New Women Facebook page. Thanks so much for listening.